Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show Is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, JDK Winnikin, and you can find out more about me at my website. That's wordsbyjdk.com and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me there. Would love to hear from you, hear your feedback, and some of your ideas as well. Welcome to episode 32 of this show for August 16th, 2021. And uh, today's the title of today's show is, Let's See How This Goes. And that's actually a quote from a person I'm going to be talking about um, today, primarily. Uh, let's see how this goes. And I'm mixing it up a little bit. Um, and I'd always usually read a haiku. Today, I'm going to divert from that. And I'm going to read um, a poem written by somebody else that is appropriate for today's uh, subject. Um, a lot can happen in a week, <laughs> apparently, if you think about it. People fall in love in a week. People fall out of love in a week. Uh, people start a new job. People move to a new place. Children are born <laughs> and go home. A lot can happen in a week. Uh, what we found out in this past week is that uh, countries can entirely fall apart in a week without firing a shot. We are going to be talking about um, Afghanistan, some element of it today, because it just seems, um, for me as a historian, it would seem neglectful not to, in light of how uh, important of an event this is and uh, the duration that this has that this has gone on 20 years. Um, and so today, because of that topic, I decided uh, to read a poem that really resonates with me. It has for a while, and it's written by an Afghan poet from the 13th century, um, Jalal al-Din Rumi Balkhi. Most people know him as Rumi, uh, maybe the most famous uh, Sufi poet of all time. And in the 13th century, he wrote uh, a poem that I think is appropriate for the feel and uh, just sort of some things we're going to talk about today. It goes like this. Sometimes I forget completely what companionship is. Unconscious and insane, I spill sad energy everywhere. My story gets told in various ways. A romance, a dirty joke, a war, a vacancy. Divide up my forgetfulness to any number, it will go around. These dark suggestions that I follow, are they part of some plan? Friends, be careful. Don't come near me out of curiosity or sympathy. It's a really powerful poem, and uh, Rumi was born in North Afghanistan. That's where he was from. And there's something about uh, the feel of that poem, the words of that poem, that really resonate uh, for me today and probably for lots of us out there as we watch uh, the heartbreaking scenes coming out of Kabul, uh, particularly at the, uh, the airport there in the capital. After a week in which uh, the Taliban reasserted their control over Afghanistan after 20 years out of power and did so far faster than anybody uh, really anticipated officially and maybe should have. <laughs> and I know it's really easy to do that in retrospect, uh, to be an armchair quarterback after the fact um, is a really easy thing to do. And yet I think it's worth talking about some of these uh, from a historical perspective, but also from a human perspective. So uh, with that in mind, okay, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what we are going to talk about today and what we aren't going to talk about today. Uh, I'm not wanting really to discuss uh, whether we, the United States should be leaving Afghanistan or not. 
That is certainly a debate worth having. 20 years of investment, $2 trillion later, uh, it's a lot to give up on. And it was really time for a stark choice, you could argue, that uh, time either needed to be more, there needed to be more investment, or it was time to withdraw. The last two presidential administrations decided it was time to withdraw. Roughly 70% of the American population agrees with that. And yet it's worth debating. Uh, but that's not why I'm, what I want to talk about. I'm also not really interested, in, at least in this forum, of talking about whether it was all worthwhile. That's going to depend entirely on who you ask. If you ask veterans who fought in that war, families who lost family members or those who were badly wounded or scarred psychologically by that war, they're going to have a lot of different answers themselves. Uh, depending on what side of the political aisle you're on, you might have different answers. Those, again, are debates worth having, but that's not really what I want to be talking about here today. Nor am I here to talk about who is to blame for all of this. Um, blaming people for things is really easy, in my experience, particularly in these big historical you know, big events that we all recognize as historically significant while they're happening. Uh, it's a cheap way to go about it. And it's a lot easier to talk about blame and throw that around than it is about responsibility. And as far as I'm concerned on this, uh, responsibility covers every presidential administration in Congress of the last 20 years. In some way, shape, or form, they all bear responsibility. And also, to make sure we keep on this, it's also on us as Americans those who voted some of these people in, those who voted some of these people out, and those who didn't vote at all and therefore didn't take a say in this issue in particular. Responsibility for this lies on all of us in some way, shape, or form. So what I am here to talk about is what in my mind should be the thing we're focused on the most and should be the thing that should bother us the most. And that is what appears to be the abject failure to get out those people who live in Afghanistan, who worked with us for 20 years, who believed in what we were doing for 20 years, who listened to the promises of education and freedom and opportunity for 20 years, and who, because this switch to the Taliban has happened so quickly, are likely not going to get out of the country and are facing, based on the Taliban's track record, a really, really tough perhaps deadly future for themselves, particularly if they are women or young girls. That's what we should be talking about the most, in my opinion. Um, it is open-ended. It's difficult to deliver all those promises in reality. There's certainly that. But as we are seeing in the painful visuals of what is happening in Kabul at the airport and elsewhere, when push comes to shove, that, has, that is what has been at stake for 20 years. We can talk about it all we want in this country about what does it mean for us? Did we spend money wisely? Did we spend the lives and psyches of our troops wisely? All those are worthwhile debates. But I have a feeling, no matter what the answer is to those, this is a situation which is far worse to the people that we are leaving behind who are terrified for their future. And it didn't have to be that way because we've seen this before. <laughs> uh, this, you, if you are of a certain age, which is a little bit older than me, I'm 47. If you're a little bit older than me, the scenes of helicopters landing in 
the U.S. Embassy grounds in Kabul and then flying out again and doing it back and forth, uh, as well as the scenes at the airport of desperate Afghans clinging to American transport planes as they not only taxi, but as they take off evacuating people. Cannot help but remind you of the images that you saw in the last week of April 1975 when the U.S. Embassy and American personnel and South Vietnamese supporters were being evacuated from Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam, as the armies of North Vietnam surrounded the city and eventually conquered the South after years of bitter fighting between the two sides. That was in 1975, uh, two years after the United States official involvement in Vietnam ended with the Paris uh, Peace Treaty and hundreds of thousands of American troops uh, went home. Two years after that, North Vietnam finished what it had long sought and uh, united the South with the Communist North. And it is remembered uh, as one of the low points in all of American history uh, for a good reason. And back then, just like today, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were desperate to escape the regime that was about to take over the country. Some simply because they did not want to be under communism. Many were Catholic in Vietnam and, and feared being under a militantly anti-religious regime. And or were people who were part of the South Vietnamese military, perhaps part of the South Vietnamese government. Perhaps they had worked with the Americans for years. By that point, it could have been by a, for a generation and knew they would be targeted by the new regime. And many of them were the ones who did not get out. So, so many of them wanted to escape. And despite the fact that two years had passed and there were a number of people in American government who thought it was only a matter of time before South Vietnam fell to North Vietnam, uh, preparations had not gone very far to get those supporters who wanted to leave the country for wh whatever reason, but wanted to be in the United States or somewhere else safe. Those preparations hadn't gone very far. And that meant things like getting visas for people, finding them places to go in the United States, places to settle, that type of thing. It hadn't gone very far. And because of that, there was a mass flood and exodus of people. And of course, Vietnam is entirely on, on its eastern side, uh, entirely coastal. And so many people, as the North Vietnamese closed in, uh, got onto boats, rafts, inner tubes, barges, anything they could to get out into open water where American ships and other uh, friendly ships, freighters, you name it, were out there picking people up to take them to safety. And those, all those refugees came to be known as boat people. And you, as you probably know, hundreds of thousands of those Vietnamese refugees settled in the United States, in Canada, uh, and a number of other places around the world. And uh, many of the ones who came to the United States uh, eventually became U.S. citizens and are just as much a part of the American fabric today as anyone else. And back then, it was a, I mean, it was a humanitarian disaster, uh, to put it mildly. But with Afghanistan, it's a completely landlocked country. There will not be Afghan boat people. And probably not even in the same numbers as well. Because the, the places to actually escape the country across the border, uh, despite the fact that it is a desert country surrounded on all sides by mountains and desert, 
there are not that many exit points that people can cross without being spotted. And the Taliban will do everything they can to prevent that from happening. And so what I want to talk about today by telling you a, a story from 1975 is both to honor what happened back uh, in 1975 and to remember that, um, and also to point out that this is a story that, uh, and stories like it, were ones that in 1975 and the years after provided some consolation <laughs> for a country where the experiment of Vietnam and the experience of Vietnam, I should say, was decidedly negative. It was something that allowed Americans to say, okay, at least this part we did some good on. Uh, and it's a very real thing, uh, particularly for the people that went through it. Okay? And so while this is not an example of history repeating itself, this is not how this goes, um, I do think the what happened in Vietnam 46 years ago could be instructive. And it, although it might be instructive as a missed opportunity for us, which then can maybe have us ask some positive questions about what do we do going forward. If we were not able to help all those people get out today or in the past week or we won't be able to in the next week, what can we do moving forward when we don't have military forces on the ground, when a hostile regime is in charge of the country? Hopefully something can come from that. And so this story begins with the quote that is the title of this episode. Let's see how this goes. That was said by a man named Ba Na Nguyen on April 30th, 1975. Ba Na Nguyen was a major in the South Vietnamese Air Force, and he had been for quite some time. He had a wife and three children, a pretty large extended family on his wife's side, and in 1975, that last week of April, as the North Vietnamese Army and their Viet Cong allies closed in on Saigon from all sides, having conquered the rest of the country in just days, he set out from his home for one last time. This was on April 29th. And he told his wife to take their three, three children, one of whom was an infant, a baby girl, and go to her mother's house, his mother-in-law's house, at the outskirts of the city. And he said, I will meet you there, and I'm going to be flying in a Chinook helicopter. Nguyen was a pilot, as well as a major, and he flew a Chinook helicopter. And a Chinook is a very, very large American helicopter. It's got two rotors, two blades, or two rotors that essentially power this entire giant troop transport helicopter. It can hold uh, almost two dozen uh, troops with full equipment, and certainly more people than that if it's just people. And he said, I'm going to fly back with one of those. We're all going to get in and we're going to fly out to sea to meet the American ships that are out there and that are taking on refugees. And we'll figure out what to do once we get there. That was how rapid this was. And so Nguyen returned to his base. His wife did as he had asked and collected the kids, took it to her mother-in-law's house. And the next day, April 30th in the morning, Nguyen's son remembered hearing the distinctive sound, the whoomp, whoomp, whoomp sound of a Chinook helicopter. Most people in Vietnam uh, knew that sound. And uh, if you've been watching any of the footage on the news of what's been happening in Kabul over the weekend, uh, Chinooks were being used to evacuate the U.S. Embassy in Kabul as well. It's a very distinctive aircraft. 
And so it's still in use. But it's also, you know, it's a military helicopter. It's difficult to fly. The South Vietnamese Air Force had a number of these. And so Nguyen, along with a co-pilot from his base, flew in and his wife, three children, extended family, all jumped into the aircraft and flew out to sea. Nguyen recalled later um, seeing most of Saigon on fire uh, and under fire as they flew out over the city and then out over the South China Sea. And he had a radio that worked, but he found it difficult to try and get onto any frequencies to inform any U.S. ships um, of their arrival. And so he was aware that they could be fired upon. And so he flew until he came across a U.S. Navy destroyer. Actually, it was a destroyer escort. A smaller ship, uh, the USS Kirk. And it was in the South China Sea overseeing the evacuations of civilians and others out of Saigon. By this point, there were thousands of Vietnamese out in the water on makeshift rafts and boats and that type of thing, desperate to get on board ships to be taken away from South Vietnam. And there was only so much room, obviously, and there are many Vietnamese who drowned in the effort. So not all of them were saved. But Nguyen, being a pilot and uh, flying his family out there, found his way to the USS Kirk, and the captain of USS Kirk, despite having been given orders to not allow unidentified aircraft close into the ship for safety's sake and to fire upon it, knew that many others had been flying out aircraft all day long that were really refugees, that were former South Vietnamese soldiers or officers, flying out there trying to escape. He figured it was probably the same case this time around as well, and so did not fire. And it turned out to be a really good decision. Communicating only through hand signals, Nguyen pulled off what all the crew members who stood there watching on the small deck of this destroyer, which cannot hold an aircraft that size, they said was the craziest, amount, the craziest, most dangerous, daring flying escapade they had ever seen. He lowered the Chinook down to just five or six feet above the deck of the USS Kirk opened the side door and then the co-pilot came out and communicating with men on the deck communicated that everybody was going to jump out onto the deck and to just catch them. And so one at a time with this huge aircraft, you know, pounding, pounding away and all the wind blowing up, nearly blowing people off the deck, that type of thing. One by one, Nguyen's family members jumped. They started by dropping his infant daughter down into the hands of a crewman who caught her safely and took her to safety. Once the helicopter was clear and Nguyen was the only one left on board, the co-pilot jumped too, he did something amazing, which people still talk about. You can see the footage of this um, in two places, in a 2015 documentary called The Last Days of Vietnam, as well as in Ken Burns' uh, masterful The Vietnam War series that he released a few years ago. Nguyen flew this by himself, flew this Chinook out over the water, away from... USS Kirk, but not so far that he would be uh, uh, out of out of uh, help if they if he needed it. But then he hovered it over the water, about five to ten feet off of the water. Fortunately, it was a very calm day that day on the South China Sea, which was pretty rare. And he hovered there for twenty minutes, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. There was no other ship to land on. Most ships that could take helicopters were already full of other helicopters that had already landed. Uh, and a Chinook is really big. It 
can't land on anything other than maybe the biggest U.S. aircraft carriers, and there weren't any available at the time. He certainly couldn't go back to land, and he couldn't land on any of the other ships, and so he decided that he would have to ditch this Chinook in the water. Ditching a helicopter is extraordinarily difficult to do and leave anybody alive because of those giant rotors at the top that when they hit the water, explode and send shrapnel everywhere. This had not been done successfully before in a Chinook, but Nguyen decided it was worth a try. And so for 20 minutes, as he hovered this 5 to 10 feet off the water, which is a really hard thing to do, really hard thing to do, he undressed. He pulled off of his uniform piece by piece while keeping the, this aircraft level and got stripped down to his red boxers, red boxers that eventually would be framed on a wall and put up in his house. And when he was finally ready, with the USS Kirk on station, ready to go, a boat in the water, ready to zoom out to get him. He gently nudged the stick on the helicopter to the right, away from the captain's side, and jumped out as it turned on its side and hit the water. The helicopter hit the water just as he did, and he dove straight down as far as he could, and the crash was spectacular. Pieces of rotor flew everywhere, and... Many thought on board the Kirk that he was dead. But just a minute later, he popped up <laughs> all in one piece, unwounded, and a boat picked him up and brought him to the USS Kirk where he was reunited with his family. That family eventually first went to Subic Bay, which was a big naval base, U.S. naval base in the Philippines, for processing along with thousands of other Vietnamese who had been picked up out of the water. And eventually they were repatriated to the United States and Ba Nguyen settled his family in the Seattle area, right where I live. Nguyen became a technician for Boeing for 20 years, and he raised his family in the Puget Sound area. His three children grew up with a father who insisted that they take their education seriously. The youngest daughter, the one who was the infant, ended up getting a doctorate. He was known as a very protective father. Nobody was good enough for his his daughter and sons to date, for example. But he was always a man that his children remembered, loved life, and loved being here, recognizing that they had given up a lot for these opportunities to be here. They never saw their country again, at least not while he was alive. He died in the early 2000s. But he came here and had a successful life, contributed to the country that had saved him. It's a country that saved him because he put himself in a position to be saved. It was one of those stories that had he not known how to fly, had he not been so skilled at what he'd done, his family's story would never be known. He most likely would have died in prison. His family would be unknown to history. And this country would not have benefited from his contribution and that of his children. There are hundreds of thousands of stories like that from the Vietnamese boat people who came to this country. One of the top figures in the State Department today is a woman named Ann Pham, who was a three-year-old girl who was put on a makeshift barge by U.S. diplomats in the Mekong Delta, and then they sailed under fire out into the South China Sea looking to be saved and finally were picked up by a freighter. And she came over here to become one of the most successful U.S. diplomats today. Those stories are everywhere. And what I'm pointing out today is that those 
there are many of those stories that will never happen from Afghanistan because of how this has gone on today. There will be some. We have no idea the number of um, Afghans who have been rescued by U.S. forces. We won't know that for some time. And there may be more in time, depending on how all this plays out over the next week or two. There might be more. But right now, those stories, it sounds like, are going to be few and far between. And that, to me, is the great tragedy of all of this. And perhaps the biggest sign of (laughs) failure that I think we need to consider in all of this. And it's not because Afghanistan is Vietnam. Two very separate things. But in the end, when push comes to shove, when the opportunity is there to show to real people, individual people, that the things that we were offering are things we would protect them and save them, if at all possible, to help them have, for it not to happen is an indictment. And it is a failure. And it's one I'm having a very hard time sitting with this week. And I know a lot of people are as well. The answers, of course, of how to do it differently are not easy. But it does suggest that even as militarily we are unable to help these people anymore, it does fall on us to figure out how we can still help as best we can with whatever resources we can, whether that's working with non-governmental organizations to help people get out of the country, to protect women and children in Afghanistan, particularly young girls, whether it's political pressure amassed on various countries, including our own, but not just our own, to make sure that human rights are upheld. I don't know what it is. But it seems to me we should feel compelled to do something. And it's stories like Nguyen's that I think provide some promise and can help us find some ways to say, at least for that family, this was worth it. I have no simple answers on that, and I don't pretend to. I hope this week, as you wrestle with this and other questions, you'll be able to reflect on this episode, see what you think. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you'd like. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to have a conversation with you. In the meantime, uh, between now and next week, everyone, thanks for joining me on this episode of This Show's All About You. I am JDK Winnikin. And until next week, even if it's tough, chins up, everyone.